Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a bioethicist discusses vaccine mandates and other thorny pandemic issues. If your desires as an individual endanger others, then society can rightly place limits on your activities. And two pediatricians share some important information about the dangers of sleeping with your baby. The baby should be laid on their back and there should be no bumpers or any types of blankets or even any kind of stuffed animals or anything else in the environment. All that, plus what should a parent do if they think their child has ADHD? And a visit from the Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, two pediatricians explain why it's dangerous to sleep with your baby and how to create a safe sleep environment for your baby. Then, we'll hear what parents should do if they think their child may have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. But first, a bioethicist tackles vaccine mandates and other thorny ethical issues tied to the pandemic. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The pandemic raises many ethical questions, and for help understanding how to think about particular issues, I'm talking with Dr. Sid Johnson. She's a philosopher and associate professor of bioethics and humanities at Upstate. I appreciate your time, Dr. Johnson. Thanks for inviting me. Without getting into politics, I'd like to ask you about the ethics of vaccine mandates. In a free society, how can people be required to get vaccinated? Well, there are people who think that vaccine mandates involve actually coercing individuals to be vaccinated against their will. And that's really not true. People will still retain their right to refuse vaccines, even if there are mandates in place. But it does mean that their options to be involved in public and social life and to enjoy some of the benefits of living in a society will end up being restricted. So some of the first institutions that adopted mandates were colleges and universities. They can't force students to be vaccinated, but they can restrict their ability to participate in the life of the university. And I think we may see the same sorts of restrictions happening if mandates are adopted uh, on a wider scale. No one has a right to go to any particular college or university. So restricting access for the safety of other students doesn't violate anyone's rights. Access to airplanes or cruise ships or concerts or malls or other kinds of public events is just not a right. And there have always been limits on our access to those kinds of things. So a mandate would just involve one more limit and individuals will still be free to choose to refuse vaccines if they don't want them. Is the overall goal of a vaccine mandate, is it meant to protect society and put the needs of a group of people over the desires of an individual? Well, as members of a society, what we do as individuals obviously affects others. And our membership in society has benefits for us, both for us as individuals and for the whole of society. That, that's the social contract. And in exchange for the benefits of living in a society, we agree that we will bear the burdens and responsibilities of contributing to the common good. And that includes protecting others. And individuals who refuse to contribute to the common good are typically called free riders in philosophy. They want the benefits, but they don't want any of the responsibilities. And in my view, vaccine refusers are free riders. They're willing to let others protect them by getting vaccinated. They're willing to use healthcare resources if they get sick and need to go to the hospital. So I don't think it's as simple as saying that there's a conflict between the needs of the group and the desires of individuals. If your desires as an individual endanger others, then society can rightly place limits on your activities. I've seen companies that entice workers to get vaccinated with cash bonuses 
And I've seen companies that say unvaccinated workers are going to have to pay a surcharge um, for their health care coverage. Is the carrot or the stick, is this a more sort of ethical approach? Well, I think that the the general strategy is to do what's going to work. And of course, we always prefer it if we can reward people rather than um, than take things away from them. Um, and so for people who will be motivated by by cash or or um, by some kind of reward or a lottery system or something like that, um, that's great, right? Let's motivate them to the extent possible by providing some kind of, of carrot. But there are still people who are not going to be swayed by that and people who will still refuse to be vaccinated. And in those cases, I think we don't really have a good choice other than to start to restrict their access to some of the benefits that are valuable to them. And part of what we're trying to do there is make life more inconvenient for them and persuade them in that way to to get vaccinated. But they are still free to refuse. So there's no, um, you know, the sticks don't involve things like putting you in prison or something like that. So there, I don't think there's really a problem with having those kinds of incentives either. Some of the other sticks are that you have to get maybe a daily or weekly COVID test which aren't right. necessarily, you know, pleasant. So they're they're not especially pleasant. And I think, again, the idea there is that we're going to make it inconvenient for you not to be vaccinated. The, the problem is, though, that being vaccinated and getting tested every week or twice a week or, or however often it is are not really equivalent. You being tested will catch if you're infected, but by the time we've tested you, you might have already infected a dozen or two dozen people. Getting vaccinated, on the other hand, protects you from getting infected, but it also protects other people that you might in turn infect. So they're not really equivalent in that sense, and we shouldn't think that they are. But again, the point is to try to incentivize people to get vaccinated rather than go through the inconvenience of being tested. Now, earlier when the vaccines first became available widely, um, you saw different states running lotteries to try to get people to get vaccinated. And I wonder from sort of a philosopher's point of view, do gimmicks like that help or do they hurt the effort to build a sense of solidarity with public health and willingness, you know, to take risks for the common good. I don't, I don't think they hurt in the sense that they might prompt some people to become vaccinated. The problem with those kinds of incentives is that they don't really build that sense of community. They exploit people's self-interest. And the problem right now, I think, is that a lot of people think that their self-interest and the common good are not aligned. And so having incentives that simply promote your self-interest sort of exacerbates that problem. It doesn't get you to, to really think about what you might owe to, to the members of your community or to your fellow citizens and what's good for everyone. Is there an ethical distinction between mandating a vaccine with emergency use authorization versus one that has the full FDA approval? I don't think there's really an important ethical distinction there. We um, we certainly saw that there was an, an attempt, at least, to draw a legal distinction there. Um, the EUA is there because FDA approval is is lengthy. It's a long process. And when there's an emergency, as we see with a global deadly pandemic, a vaccine or a drug can get approved for use when there's sufficient evidence that it's safe and that it's effective and that it is very likely to be fully approved. And that's exactly what we saw happen with the Pfizer vaccine, for example. There would be an ethical issue if something that's wholly unproven and untested and unsafe was mandated. We shouldn't be mandating snake oil remedies like you know, horse dewormer or hydroxychloroquine or drinking bleach, right? But that's not the situation we're in with the EUAs. Um, some places 
SUNY, for example, the SUNY system said they would not mandate vaccination until the vaccine was fully approved. Um, other universities did, and there were a number of lawsuits that were filed against them prior to the approval of the vaccines. But the courts actually did uphold those mandates even before the vaccine was fully approved. So it appears that the legal distinction was also not very significant. So would ethical considerations change based on how deadly or how infectious a disease is? We always have moral obligations to others. And as the danger to health and life becomes more serious and more urgent, our obligations to take action will increase. So um, you might compare what's happening now to the flu. We have flus that happen. We have a seasonal flu. Flu vaccines are a case where we don't mandate those vaccines. Lots of people get sick from the flu. It's very unpleasant. Some people get seriously ill. Some people require hospitalization and ventilators if they get, get pneumonia. And some people will die. But our approach to that disease takes all of that into account. Only some people will get seriously ill, our hospitals won't be overwhelmed, and every year our public health surveillance will track which flu strains are going to emerge and which vaccines to manufacture. It's not clear that, that we could sustainably mandate vaccination for flu every single year. It would require a huge amount of vaccine and a huge expenditure of resources to administer them as well. But what we're confronting now is really not comparable to the seasonal flu. One of the worst recent flu pandemics we had was in 2009 when we had the H1N1 flu. And at that point, our capacity to manufacture vaccines was fairly slow compared to the speed of the pandemic. So there was a serious shortage of vaccines. In the US, there were about 60 million people who were infected. There were about a quarter million hospitalizations and about 12,000 people died. And worldwide, it's estimated that the number of deaths might have been as high as about half a million people from that particular pandemic. But COVID is just orders of magnitude worse. There have been 220 million cases worldwide and more than 4 million deaths. So we're dealing with a much more serious and deadly pandemic, which means that our obligations to take action are just that much greater and our response has to be different. What do bioethicists uh, think about vaccine mandates that have exemptions for either medical or religious reasons? Well, vaccine mandates have to have exemptions for people who cannot be safely vaccinated, as well as for children who currently can't be vaccinated because we haven't completed the process of establishing safe doses for the vaccine for children. And it's a, just a matter of justice that we have to um, exempt those individuals and treat them fairly, just like the rest of us. But the rest of us have a moral obligation to help protect those people who cannot be vaccinated. And part of that obligation just means surrounding them with a firewall of people who are vaccinated and who can help stop the transmission of the virus. Do you think that hospitals and doctor's offices and medical facilities have a moral imperative to create a safe environment for their patients by themselves being 100% vaccinated? The issues are fairly different between hospitals and sort of private practice or, or clinic um, clinics that provide care to patients. Hospitals provide services um, it, that include treating people who are facing health emergencies. And, you know, as a patient, I want to know if the doctors and the staff in the clinic that I go to are vaccinated, and I might decide to go somewhere else if they're not. But patients in the hospital don't really have that choice very often. And that's one reason why we might think that mandating vaccination for hospital staff um, is more important. And it is also the case, of course, that many more seriously ill people are in the hospital. Many more people who cannot themselves be vaccinated um, are in the hospital, including children and infants. So we have sort of more urgent reasons why hospital workers and staff should be vaccinated. 
How does the ethics of vaccination compare with other health issues in terms of people who do or don't comply with a health recommendation for any number of reasons? I'm thinking about, you know, urging people not to smoke and then treating them for smoking related illnesses or urging people to, you know, brush their teeth and then dealing with dental problems. How is this different? Well, certainly public health is involved in um, encouraging people to, to take care of their health, encouraging people to quit smoking if they're smokers, to, to be vaccinated, to take care of their teeth and so on. And there's nothing wrong with encouraging people to take better care of their own personal health. But when people have health problems, which are sometimes related to choices that they've made or lifestyle choices that they have, I think they're still morally entitled to healthcare. And I, I don't think we want to start dividing people up into those who, who are performing the preferred activities and those who are not. I mean, we have, at that point, we're making moral judgments about who is entitled to be healthy and who's entitled to live based on our decisions about which activities are preferred. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more ethical concerns during the pandemic with Dr. Sid Johnson, a bioethics and humanities assistant professor. Welcome back to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with philosopher and assistant professor Sid Johnson from Upstate's Department of Bioethics and Humanities. We spoke about vaccine mandates and whether they're morally justified, and now we're going to shift to another somewhat related issue. Early in the pandemic, when numbers were spiking in New York City, bioethicists were talking about whether there would be a need to ration ventilators. And now there are concerns about staff shortages that could mean fewer patients can be cared for. And there's also ventilator shortages in areas where COVID cases are surging. Um, I imagine guidelines and criteria vary from state to state or institution to institution. What are the most common criteria in use? Well, the criteria are not for deciding who gets admitted to the hospital and who doesn't. They are designed to ration care that is limited. So ICU beds, ventilators, ECMO, um, the criteria usually attempt to objectively quantify which patients have the best chances of benefiting from treatment by surviving and sometimes by who's going to survive the longest. Um, the problem is when those criteria start to use measures like pre-existing conditions or disabilities because some of those conditions will also result in effective ind affected individuals needing health care more. So, should we prioritize treatment for the people who were youngest and healthiest before they got COVID? We wouldn't usually do that if someone was in a car accident, for example. Or should we prioritize based on the greatest need, which will include people who are already more vulnerable because of their baseline health status? So it's a, a real dilemma because, of course, when you have to ration certain forms of health care, there's no choice about doing that. There just isn't enough to be um, to go around. The, the question is, how can we do that in a way that is just and fair to everyone? So rationing really would come into use only in sort of a crisis situation that, that we find ourselves in. It, is the primary goal always to save as many lives as possible? Is that the intent? The goal is typically to save as many lives as possible given limited resources, and that's frequently going to involve some kind of triage where we make decisions about the likelihood of survival for a specific patient. That's typically how we do it. Those who are most likely to benefit and survive are prioritized for treatment. What about are ethicists okay with random lotteries? to decide like who gets the ventilator? Well, random lotteries appear to be fair um, on, on the face of it, um, but we still might 
obviously if it's truly random, we might be catching people who could survive without the ventilator rather than someone who uh, really could not survive without it. So there's a, a certain kind of fairness in randomness, but we also have to look at, you know, which patients are, are in that lottery to begin with. Is it everyone who presents on a particular day? What if someone the next day comes in who, who needs that ventilator even more, right? Uh, do we, once they're distributed, do we just leave it as it is? So there's problems with doing that. And, and part of it is that people don't all come to the hospital at the same time with the same health conditions. So it's not especially feasible to have that kind of selection process. So it wouldn't be fair to do first come first serve either then because people are not all coming at the same time. Right. The problem there is that um, if you do first come first serve, you're, you're first going to prioritize the people who get sick first rather than people who get sick the most. Um, and part of the problem there is also that many people just have more limited access to health care, to health insurance, to health treatment. You know, if someone has great insurance and they have access to transportation, they're more likely to seek health care sooner than someone who's isolated or someone who's uninsured and worried about, you know, not just how they're going to pay for health care, but how they're going to pay for their next meal or someone who lacks transportation access. So first come, first serve seems like it might result in a kind of fair and random selection, but it's more likely to favor those who already have socioeconomic advantages because they tend to be at the front of the line already. Would it be ethical to prioritize people who were vaccinated against COVID over those who were not? There's understandable frustration with people who refused vaccination and then show up at the hospital desperately ill with COVID. We think those people made a bad choice, but is it the purpose of healthcare to punish people for their bad choices? And in this case, we might be punishing them with, with death and a miserable death at that. I don't think that's the purpose of healthcare. I think it's immoral for people who could be safely vaccinated to refuse it when we're in a worldwide health emergency. But people do lots of immoral things and they should still be treated medically when they need it. What about prioritizing a class of people, for instance, healthcare workers, giving them sort of, you know, first dibs on the ventilator if they're ill? Right. As a practical matter, it makes some sense to prioritize people based on their contributions to keeping our health system functioning. Not as a reward, but because we need them. But in general, I'm not in favor of creating you know, favored classes of people based on how useful they are. That instrumentalizes those people and it makes their value as human beings dependent on their usefulness. And it's pretty clear that doing that would also endanger a whole lot of people. Are children useful? Are people who are jobless or unhoused useful? I don't think usefulness is the right criterion for prioritizing healthcare. Now, New York State has guidelines for how medical staff should decide which patients will get a ventilator during a pandemic if there's a shortage. Can you summarize what the guidelines say and let us know, have there been any updates or changes since the pandemic began? The New York State guidelines were developed in 2015, and that was in response to the H1N1 pandemic of 2009. And New York State's Task Force on Life and the Law proposed ventilator allocation guidelines, which they developed with the explicit goal of saving the most lives in an influenza pandemic and giving priority to patients for whom ventilator therapy would most likely be life-saving. So they prioritize on the basis of objective criteria regarding benefit and survivability. So they rule out non-clinical allocation criteria, including things like first come first serve or randomized lottery or prioritizing certain social categories, including healthcare workers. So their criteria 
are not subjective, or that's the goal at least, and they um, and they do support the goal of of trying to save the most lives. They rejected a few other criteria, including age, because of the potential for discrimination against the elderly, um, and of course the elderly are also more likely to to have pre-existing conditions that might make them more vulnerable as well. Washington State has guidelines too. Uh, can you explain why advocates for the disabled have complained about the criteria in use in Washington? Right. Um, Washington State had one of the first significant outbreaks of COVID in the U.S. And so they released a set of, of guidelines early um, in the pandemic. And in their guidelines, the presence of significant underlying disease process that predicts poor short-term survival was one of several of their clinical criteria that they thought should be considered. Now, um, advocates for the disabled filed a legal complaint against their policy saying that the policy used discriminatory criteria that would disadvantage or exclude disabled individuals from access to life-sustaining ventilators. And in particular, they were concerned about the use of so-called uh, baseline functional status, and that included things like your physical ability, cognition, and general health in making those allocation decisions because both physical ability and cognition would easily pick out certain disabled persons for lower priority regardless of whether or not they needed a ventilator. So those kinds of supposedly objective clinical criteria can disproportionately affect certain people and I think we should be worried if those people are already disadvantaged and discriminated against. When people are already facing unjust discrimination in their lives, healthcare discrimination really just piles on and it also threatens their lives. Now, society can set up guidelines for the distribution of scarce resources, and it sounds like different states have done that um, and are doing that. But what happens when someone who is wealthy or influential just opts out of the, the system and buys their own ventilator or hires their own nursing staff or turns their own bedroom into an ICU. How does that have an impact on the rest of us? Well, it would certainly affect us if their use of resources took those resources away from other people or from society at large. It's not obvious that that would happen. It would clearly happen if many, many people started doing that, setting up their own private healthcare systems in their homes. Um, I, I don't think we're facing that kind of situation. Um, one of the, the real concerns that disabled people had early in the pandemic was their worry that for those who actually use a ventilator all the time in their everyday lives, they were concerned that if they got sick and went to a hospital, their ventilator might be taken away and given to someone else, someone who had higher priority in the allocation scheme. And, and that's a legitimate concern, and that would be unjust. Um, I, I think we might be worried about someone wealthy who is not contributing to the common good and, and taking away resources, but I'm not sure that, that someone setting up their own private doctor and nurse would actually have that effect. Sid Johnson is a philosopher and associate professor of bioethics and humanities at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, creating a safe sleep environment for your baby. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, I'm speaking with two members of the Onondaga County Child Fatality Review Team, Dr. Alicia Pekarski, she's an Associate Professor of Pediatrics, and Dr. Erin Hanley, she's an Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine. Thank you both for taking time for this interview. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having now, me. The Child Fatality Review Team, which you're both part of, reviews any unexpected death of people under age 18 in Onondaga County. Is that right? That's correct. 
And why is this done? Dr. Pekarski, can you explain what is hoped to be learned? Well, we're hoping to gather data um, on the fatalities that our community experiences so that we can look um, for trends and figure out how to prevent these deaths. So we're tabulating data, um, one, and then also it's important um, to provide this data to the state um, so they collect it from the different local child fatality review teams and see if there's trends that um, kind of go across the state versus being particular to one area. So it sounds like other counties in New York State conduct similar reviews in their areas. They do. Our um, child fatality review team is a pretty large and well-recognized one. Um, some of the communities um, in more remote areas in New York State um, still do child fatality review, but they do it in groups. So there'll be a collection of three or four counties that do them because they don't experience as many fatalities due to their smaller population size. Well, among deaths of people 17 and younger in Onondaga County, uh, Dr. Hanley, what is the leading mm -hmm. cause of death and what is the most common causes of death that are reviewed by your team? Um, there is definitely uh, a pattern of uh, deaths that are related to uh, unsafe sleep in the infant population. And I would say being on the team for the last uh, couple of years, uh, that has been primarily the main types of uh, infant-related deaths that we see. Um, typically, and in the same pattern, you know, nationally, usually the older teenage population is typically more related to accidental deaths, um, high-risk behaviors, um, et cetera. Uh, but I would say the majority of the, the deaths that we review are more under the age of 12 months uh, consistently and are very often related to unsafe sleeping conditions. Dr. Pekarski, do you know if our community is similar to others across the nation in terms of these death rates in infants, or do we have an unusually high number of different types of deaths? Unfortunately, the rate in our county is um, similar to the counties across New York State. Um, I can't necessarily speak to the rest of the country, though I've in pockets of the country, yes. Um, the rate that we experience is approximately the same. Are there other trends that you've noticed in recent years? I think, unfortunately, the trend that I, I think is most notable is that the rate of unsafe sleep deaths has remained the same. Um, I joined our local um, county's child fatality review team in 2006, and the number of deaths that we um, review every year has remained the same. Um, so I think that's, you know, an unfortunate trend. The trend that we would like to see is that it would be decreasing over time as we learn um, and, you know, educate the community and um, use preventative measures. But unfortunately, it's been a hard um, thing for it to change. Wow. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and my guests are Dr. Alicia Pekarski and Dr. Aaron Hanley. They're both doctors from Upstate who are part of the Onondaga County Child Fatality Review Team. So I'd like to zero in on the unsafe sleep environments and start with sort of a definition, really. Dr. Hanley, what is an unsafe sleep environment? An unsafe environment is any kind of environment that puts the baby at risk for having a sudden death or uh, event that would cause them to be unsafe overall and could cause them to stop breathing. You know, we really try to reinforce and encourage and tell families is that the environment your baby's sleeping in is extremely important and vital to their overall health and well-being and livelihood. So I think that really what in, what a safe environment is and the definition of that is really even more important and doing all of those things will then, you know, provide them with the best environment for safety. And that really includes a enclosed crib or bassinet or pack and play with um, a firm mattress and a fitted sheet and really and laying the baby on their back. And after that, those are the really main things that you need to have and for a baby to be safe. When you add other things into the environment, that is when you cause 
a more unsafe environment for the baby. Well, let me ask you about that. When a like a newborn comes home from the hospital, you mentioned a crib or bassinet. Is either okay, or does a, a newborn need a smaller space like in a bassinet since they're so small? So any type of crib or bassinet that allows the baby to be on a firm mattress with a fitted sheet with, you know, no difficulties where the baby would fall or have any kind of, um, you know, additional types of blankets or anything like that are really important. The baby should be laid on their back and there should be no bumpers or any types of blankets or even any kind of stuffed animals or anything else in the environment. And the bassinet is okay when the baby is an infant size, but typically those are meant for a very limited time period only because as the baby starts to get bigger and moving, you need something that's gonna be uh, larger in size and have higher you know, rails for that child. Um, but it's those types of, and even a pack and play that has a firm mattress and is enclosed and fitted sheet, that's appropriate as well. Well, Dr. Pekarski, let me ask you, how do you keep a baby warm if you're not allowed to put the, a blanket on them? How do you get them dressed for sleep that will be safe? So I think a lot of parents have that concern um, and parents worry that their baby's gonna be too cold, especially at nighttime um, while they're sleeping for prolonged periods of time. And we recommend you know, that the babies wear typically one layer extra compared to what you're comfortable with at night. So when parents hear that, they know that they wanna put something on top of the baby over their, um, their onesie and pajamas. And what we recommend um, are, are wearable blankets. Um, so those are our blankets. They're made out of fleece or cotton material that um, zip up around the baby and there's an opening for the baby's neck and there's two openings for the baby's arm on either side. And we recommend that parents check the, the size. Um, they're sized, so you can get them for preemies up through toddler, um, toddler age, because what you wanna be careful about there is not buying something that's too small or too large that the baby would be able to move around in and then get the blanket over their face. So you need the one that's the right size for your baby, but those are, they're fantastic. They keep your baby warm. Um, and if you catch, if you pick the right size, um, there's no way that it can get over the baby's nose or mouth. Uh, when newborns come home from the hospital, they're often like swaddled, like the nurses in the um, in the unit do. They're kind of bundled in with their arms closed up tight too. Should a baby sleep that way? I think it's okay for them to sleep that way in the first couple of months, typically. Um, what we now advise, though, is if a baby, if you're swaddling your baby um, for sleep, is that once they start to look like they may be rolling, so they don't have to be fully rolling, but you know they're starting to move one shoulder up um, and one hip up, like they're gonna roll, um, that's when you should stop swaddling when they're sleeping and you're sleeping. Okay, Dr. Hanley, um, I wanna mm -hmm. ask you a question about twins. Can twins share a crib safely? Or triplets for that matter, could you have three babies in a crib? I'll take this one. Um, I'm um, a mom of twins and then a singleton, uh, but my first experience as a parent was with twins. Um, and I had mentioned to Dr. Hanley yesterday that when I delivered my babies, um, while I was standing up next to them, I put them in the same um, bassinet just for a second. And the nurses promptly came in to, to share with me, you cannot do that. <laughs> and I said, oh, I know I will not sleep them like that. So the answer is no, you cannot sleep twins or um, you know higher order multiples in the same crib, even if it's a large crib and they're small babies. Unfortunately, there's still a small risk that one of the baby's arms could you know, cover another baby's nose and mouth or the blanket that the baby's wearing get over the other baby's nose or mouth. So we do recommend two separate sleep surfaces or more for multiples. So I guess there's no cats or dogs allowed in the crib either then? Correct, that is really important. We have reviewed um, some cases where there've been pets that have gotten into the cribs and occluded the child's nose or mouth. Right. And also we have additionally reviewed cases where 
an older sibling has been in the same sleeping arrangement with the infant and has caused suffocation as well. Okay. Now, what about room temperature? Dr. Hanley, does that matter how warm or how cool the room is kept? So, overall, the baby really shouldn't be in a high, extra warm type of environment. Uh, and typically, I would always recommend that if you're comfortable in the room, your baby is comfortable in the room. Um, but I would say keeping and overheating a room would be uh, discouraged. Can a parent safely let a baby remain sleeping in the car seat? Like if they get home from a drive and the baby's sleeping and they don't want to disturb the baby to put them in the crib, is it safe for them to snooze in the car seat? Overall, it's really not recommended to have a baby sleeping in a car seat or a bouncer seat or a swing. Those are all found to have increased risk for the baby. Uh, there is times where the baby could actually obstruct their airway, meaning they can they bring their neck down and they're in a position where they won't be able to take those nice normal breaths and get oxygen, and that can cause problems. There have been cases where there's been asphyxiation because of the car seat strap causing pressure over the airway. And so all of those are discouraged because of the high risk of uh, morbidity and mortality and the known deaths that we've seen from that. So we would recommend not to keep them in any type of even strollers or car seats or any of those types of uh, baby carriers uh, for sleeping. What about a mother or father who the baby falls asleep on their chest? Maybe they're watching TV in a recliner and the baby they're holding and the baby falls asleep. Is it safe to let the baby stay that way? As long as you are staying awake when the baby is on your chest, that is okay. But I would say that you have to be very careful because it is a very comfortable position to be when your baby is on your chest sleeping. Um, and I would just remind people that if you fall asleep, and the baby is unattended and on your chest that can make for an unsafe situation. Um, if you're awake and baby's falling on your chest, I think that is okay. Dr. Pekarski, I, I want to get back to the, you know, sleeping on their back and why that's so important. And at some point, the baby's going to grow big enough to roll over. Does a parent need to keep watch and make sure the baby is put back on their back? if they roll over in the middle of the night? Yeah, that's a great question. We get that a lot in um, general pediatrics and I'm sure in the emergency department too with Dr. Hanley. Um, no, parents do not need to flip their child over once they've started to roll. Once a child or an infant has started to roll and they roll on their onto their tummies, we presume that they have um, enough head control and ability to move their head and neck that they would move it if their face was on the uh, on the, the mattress or near their arm. And in fact, we don't recommend that parents flip the children because that um, will decrease the sleep that the baby's getting. It'll decrease the parents' sleep and make everyone tired and probably very anxious. Before we wrap up, what are some safe ways for parents to bond with their baby? So a few of the things that we recommend, there's there's a lot of ways that, you know, parents and caregivers can, can bond with their baby. Um, some enjoyable moments are just cuddling with the baby um, while you're, you know, sitting upright or maybe on the floor with the baby. Um, we love to hear about parents um, talking to the baby, kind of illustrating their day, describing what they're seeing and watching for the baby's reactions because that's great for the baby and their learning and it's a positive thing for parents. And then I would say, um, you know, the, the reading, singing, so talk, read, sing is a, a kind of a push in general pediatrics to remind parents that um, young babies are always listening um, and they learn in, you know, ways that we might not anticipate. Um, so those are all really fantastic ways to, to bond with your baby. I appreciate both of you making time to share this important information. My guests have been Dr. Alicia Pekarski, an Associate Professor of Pediatrics, and Dr. Erin Hanley, an Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
Here's some expert advice from Dr. Stephen Ferrone from Upstate Medical University. What should a parent do if they think their child has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder? The first thing the parent should do would be to discuss their concerns with their pediatrician. Pediatricians are usually very knowledgeable about ADHD because they uh, treat, most of them treat children with ADHD in their practice. If the pediatrician tells you that your child doesn't have ADHD, then you have two options. One is to agree and wait and see what happens in the future, to monitor, but I would monitor the situation if you have concerns. The second is to evaluate what the pediatrician told you, because there are some pediatricians who have a negative attitude towards ADHD. And if they seem to have a negative attitude about the disorder, you might consider going, going elsewhere. And where would elsewhere be? Well, the next step would be to go see a, ideally a child and adolescent psychiatrist, because these are clearly the world experts in ADHD. Well, it can be hard to get an appointment, and therefore you might want to, to consider seeing either a, a clinical psychologist who specializes in children um, or even another pediatrician. But I have to emphasize, if you're concerned about your child because they're not doing well in school, because they're not socializing with 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 other kids, they're showing real impairments, I would not take no for an answer unless you get a very good answer. Because if, if your child, you don't want your child falling behind. One of the things that always worries me, well, I should say, I'll tell you why I'm worried about this, because years ago we did a study looking at the time between the first diagnosis of ADHD, actually the first diagnosis of any child with psychiatric disorder and the first onset of symptoms. The average, the average distance was about four to six years, which is a huge gap in a child's life. Can you imagine on average four to six years not being treated for a disorder? What happens then is that things only get worse because the disorder, having this order um, complicates the child's life very much. So I'm, a, I'm always in favor of being very clear on why somebody thinks you don't have, your, your child doesn't qualify for the diagnosis when you seem to have clear evidence that there is a disorder there. You can also talk to the teacher, get information from the teacher about the child's behavior. Teachers have uh, a good perspective. It is possible that you, you know, some parents are just really nervous about how their kid's doing. I, I wouldn't, for example, say my kid has ADHD just because they're doing poorly in school. Um, ADHD is a specific set of symptoms. Kids do poorly in school for lots of reasons. Um, kids with ADHD also do poorly in many situations. If your child only has ADHD symptoms in one place, like at home or in school, that's not ADHD. That has something to do with the situation that needs to be resolved. And so that's something, you know, a pediatrician might be telling you when they say your child doesn't have the disorder. And then once we get diagnosed, once you or the child gets diagnosed with the disorder, then depending upon who you see, you'll get offered a certain kind of treatment. Some, most pediatricians will offer medication treatment because that is, that follows the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, except for preschoolers. And in preschoolers, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that uh, one start with a course of family behavior therapy first, and if that doesn't resolve the problem within a few months or so, then to move on to medication. But if your child qualifies for medication based on those guidelines and your pediatrician says no, again, you want a good answer why they're not providing the medication, because we know that the medications work. Now, another issue that parents face is that they're really nervous about the medications. And you know, frankly, I would be too. I have you know, I raised three boys who are now in their 30s, but I was always concerned when they had to take a medication for any problem that they had in life. So these concerns are very reasonable. But remember, you're weighing your concerns about the medication with the concerns about what will happen to your child if their disorder is not treated. And I've just seen too many cases of children who did not get treated for many, many years because their parents were worried about the effects of treatment and they ended up having a very bad course in life that led to underachievement and all the negative outcomes we know that can be caused by ADHD. So keep in mind that the medications for ADHD, particularly the stimulant medications, stimulant medications, they've been used for, for decades. I mean, been, they were approved by the FDA. The first one was approved by the FDA in the 1960s. Uh, they were actually discovered in the late 1930s. Amphetamine was discovered to help with ADHD back in 1937 or 39. So these have been used for years. They even use stimulant medications, even used to treat the elderly. Um, 
in cases particularly where people fall asleep easily and so forth like that. And they've been shown to be very safe in the elderly. So they've passed many, many, many safety tests for many decades. So I, I would urge parents not to be overly concerned about, about that. The only, the main concern about the use of the stimulant medications is that they're not to be used in um, anyone who has a pre-existing cardiac condition because that can exacerbate those problems. You've been listening to Dr. Stephen Ferrone from Upstate Medical University. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. A.R. Beckenstein attends Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Her poem, This Life Sentence is Not a Death Sentence, gently but firmly seeks to persuade her listener that there is reason to keep going. I know some days you play with pills and fiddle with razor blades, calculating the LD50 of your antidepressants and writing suicide notes in the margins of your geography notes. I know some days you pray that gravity fails, liberating you from the shackles of existing on this spinning water rock. But you see, death is not a hobby. Dying is not an option. And this isn't even a multiple choice question. This is a confirmation, a continuance, a cultivation. If your life is anything, it is a wild flower, somehow growing in a tiny and unexpected crevice of the universe, hidden amongst the weeds, looking. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how genetics can influence how medications work. To hear more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, Thanking you for listening.